The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. We got chart action, overhead resistance, too much to beat. UK inflation running on the wrong side of the road. Yields higher, that's reasonable. Low quality stocks higher. What's wrong with this picture? And we got some big calls on the market with our guest today, Peter Schiff of Euro Pacific Capital. All this and much more on episode number 778 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. about that for a manufactured short squeeze wow so now it's okay for management of a publicly traded company to create a gamma squeeze through options of another company i mean that whole ordeal with bed bath and beyond is crazy almost up 200 percent in a week or so as gamestop chairman ryan Cohn is playing games again igniting the message boards i thought i don't know this is kind of something in the past and then we see as the week goes on, things get crazier and crazier. And then, whoa, all of a sudden, the announcement, they're dumping all their shares, all of their shares. And what happens? Cratering down back towards the lows that we saw before this whole gamma squeeze took, took place. Really unbelievable. I mean, I thought the message boards were a thing in the past, definitely back in the 1990s, right? 1999. But... You know, in a world where the wealthiest man, Elon Musk, can tweet at 8.01 p.m. and talk about how he's just kidding, but he was buying Manchester United, then a few hours later saying it was just a, well, it was, well, it's just, I don't know, something I say. I mean, come on. How is this fair play for the average Joe? How is this fair for anyone? And I don't blame you for getting discouraged. How can any of us believe what we are seeing if there's nothing being done about this corruption? Hey, I'm Andrew Horowitz, and welcome to the Disciplined Investor Podcast. I am your host of this and DH Unplugged. I am an investment advisor. We manage money every single day for clients and people just like you. Now, look, let's get something straight. For the most part, for the, I mean, when you look at the totality of it all, for the most part, markets are fair. I mean, if you don't think so, then you're probably out there and not invested. You may be fighting it all along saying, you know what, this is just stupid. It's not going along right. And I don't believe in it. And now you're sore. You're aggravated that, you know, and you'll swear that this is not going to be anything good. I'm never going back into that. I mean, that frankly is just a, that's dumb. Now, before you turn this off, because now you're mad at me and you know who you are, let's make some lemonade out of some of the lemons here, shall we? Because I know that many people are invested in some big losers that they're not going to sell. I know that there's no investment for some people that they trust at all. I know that there is, in fact, I know personally, a relative that has told me for years and years that they're okay with just being in cash and they cannot handle 
the volatility of the markets. Nonsense. Because what's volatility? I mean, it's important to understand risk tolerance. I'll give you that. There's no question about that. But let's talk about volatility. What is that all about? I mean, do you notice if your house loses 10 or 20% and do you care? Well, not really. You know why? Because you view that as a long-term investment. You're like, you know, I'm okay with it. Whatever happens in between, you know, it goes up and down and, you know, I'm, I'm good with it. How about the cash you have in the bank that you're not invested, right? You're not invested, so I'm keeping all my money in cash and high-grade money markets, et cetera, which is worth about 7% or 8%, lower than it was a year ago due to the fact that you don't have the ability to buy the things that you did as inflation, on average, is 8% or so. Did that cause you any grief? Or you felt, you know, I still got cash in the bank. I feel good. I mean, you have a mindset that is long-term when it comes to things like this. You're not going to touch it. I'm not going to invade that principle. I'm not just going to sell the house if it goes down because I'm living in it. And whatever else that you rationalize, rationalize as why it is that it's okay for this particular asset that I own to do what it does. But somehow you think differently when it comes to the markets, stocks and bonds and anything that you can see transparently moving on a regular basis. You're like, no, not interested, not interested. I would much rather have something that will guarantee me if I put in a uh, hundred thousand dollars today, I'll get back 107,008 years from now with no loss of principal. Uh, okay. Do the math on that. But why is that? Could, I mean, could you take a different approach? Remember last week we talked about the reboot? Can you change your paradigm about this? This concept that you're afraid, you don't want to get near it? Sure you can. I mean, if you're one of these people that are either uber bull or uber bear, or you stick to one asset only, you're not doing yourself any good. Come on now. Seriously. Come on. Let's go. Let's do something about it. Yeah, markets are volatile. No question about that. But you know what? It depends on the time frame. And that's what I was talking about in the beginning here when I said, you know, what's volatility? Volatility is daily, weekly. But if you start stretching out a chart and you look at where things are, whatever the particular price is over time of an investment, a stock, a real estate, gold, whatever you want to look at, whatever you want to look at, there has been generally less volatility the longer you stretch it out. And I want you to take this time over the next few hot summer weeks to do something special for yourself. I want you to rethink. I want you to go back and start thinking about where are the opportunities. Listen, if you're 85 years old, I'm not suggesting you go out and just simply think about investing in you know, cryptocurrencies or something like that. No, I'm saying if you're the, the person that has been just missing out on opportunities left and right consistently over your life and you've been kicking yourself a hundred times, if not once, come on, let's do something about it. Let's get your feet wet. You know, some time ago during the pandemic, when people were totally freaking out, we had this um, one foot in, one foot out concept that really helped a lot of people get over that hurdle. The idea that, well, I don't have to be fully invested, right? And how do I actually look for the opportunity? 
And what we created was this dollar cost averaging plan that had two major components. One was that it was an absolute time base that we would get into the markets that would be um, appropriate for a particular investor, right? Over time, once a month, let's say, twice a month, whatever it is, once every quarter, again, whatever it is. But also we would look for opportunities, an opportunistic stance that we would look for. Hey, look at the value in that particular sector, that particular area. Let's put some money in there and utilize that as part of our dollar cost averaging program. We got the best of both worlds going on here. We got on one hand an absolute traditional dollar cost averaging program that we're going to utilize, but we're also going to find those opportunities when markets swoon in certain areas that go beyond uh, levels that seem to be creating value. So important. So listen, what I want you to do and give you this gift in the waning days of the hot and bleak summer is this. This is really important. This is key to your thinking. And if you can grasp this and you can really understand it and I would say internalize it, but own it, own it. That's where I think you're going to get some great advances. And here it is. I want you to start coming from a mindset of abundance rather than scarcity. I want you to think that you'll be free to invest in yourself and the things that will create even more freedom and wealth from you from a mindset of abundance rather than scarcity. And that's what we do for our clients. That's what we do every single day. And I think the, the idea on this is that we are all scared of losing money. But if you come from abundance, you know, you lose a couple dollars. What's the difference? Now, that's what I'm saying. Not all your investments in at the same time. One foot in, one foot out. Let's work on this together. You're not to contact me if you want more help on it. But basically, let's work on that through the last few days of summer. Now, before we get to our guests, I want to talk about the markets. I mean, this week, the market is somewhat, I, I would call it, Usual and unusual. Technical indicators, one in particular, could be just maybe a coincidence to what happened. But we got the S&P 500 right up to the 200-day moving average, right up to within 20 cents. And then just like that, turned lower on Tuesday. Finished the day up, but that could have been just maybe taken as a warning sign. Because valuations are not as, they're not as enticing as they were just a few weeks ago when we went from, uh, you know, where it was out of control, 20 times PE of forward basis, 21 times, CAPE ratio was out of whack, the uh, cyclically adjusted um, price earnings ratio uh, made famous by, uh, by uh, Robert Schiller. And that is back to the 10-year average right now. Interesting. The line is right on right now. And, uh, well... We got to the, the the level, turned lower. Again, valuation's not as enticing anymore. It's a broad statement, but there is so much indexing going on that there is something to consider about the fact that we got right up to it. And that that overhead resistance, uh, what support above it, but below it, when price is below an average, that becomes an overhead resistance point that we really need to consider. Now, there's also a great deal of FOMO. Okay, we know that. And that creates froth, which eventually creates opportunities. 
And now what we want to do with the market rolling over so dramatically as it did after the touch of the 200-day moving average and the recognition, once again, that the Fed is not screwing around, is we want to start making a list of those things, a watch list of names that really are getting beat up. We did this back in June. It looked like there was no hope. I've mentioned those names a few times, but at some point, you know, you have to pull the trigger when they get to that level of support. And boy, that was some move. We cleared out most of those positions and took a great profit on many of them. Great profit. But now what? Well, now we have a large pool of cash as a buffer again in our TDI managed growth strategy. We have a major hedge on the portfolio right now, but we're looking for the next opportunity, which may be some of those very names that we had before or not. So what is the plan? What are you going to do? We know that you're going to come from abundance. We also know that you're going to start making a list, and maybe that will give you some clarity. We got a reboot last week, right? And we're going to start looking for opportunities right now. And we have so much data to parse, but let's let's really focus in on making that watch list right now so you're prepared when things do, in fact, look like they're bottoming out from an index standpoint or maybe even just simply an individual stock standpoint. So that's your assignment. So right now with that, I want to talk to our guest because I've been waiting for this. And as promised, our guest today is Peter Schiff. He's the CEO and global strategist of Euro-Pacific Capital. And uh, that's in Westport, Connecticut. And um, Pete believes that, um, well, a lot of things, but uh, we're going to talk really about his his concerns about debt-fueled growth policies. And he's known for his advocacy for emerging markets and commodity-focused investments in countries with positive fiscal characteristics. So it's been a number of years since you've been with us, Peter. How are you? How's things going? Well, you know, I'm getting over a case of COVID, which I finally had. So it's been about a couple of weeks now, but I, it lingered for at least three weeks. And oh. I've been dealing with a lot of other issues that we don't need to get into. But apart from all those problems, I guess I'm all right. All right. Well, you're here. You're with us today. And yeah. hopefully we'll get beyond everything. And some of this is just uh, as as they as we've been told, a lot of things are transitory. Yes. Right? In yeah. <laughs> well, the one thing we know isn't is inflation. So. so we're going to talk about that. I want to ask you about that. You know, one of the things that you had said recently uh, is you don't think the Fed can beat the current inflationary pressures America is dealing with today. You said, quote, not only can't the Fed win a fight against inflation without causing a recession, it can't do so without causing a far worse financial crisis than the one we had in 2008. Yeah, that's that's true, because uh, we have a lot more debt than we had in 2008. And during that time, there really was no big inflation problem, at least none that you know people could detect. Uh, but you know, rates went up to about five percent even without inflation, and that you know pricked the bubble because we had a lot of debt that was non-serviceable at that level of interest rates, and it caused asset prices to collapse and people defaulted on their debt. Well, in order to you know, put this inflation genie back in the bottle, mm. rates are going to have to go a lot higher than 5%. I mean, even though the Fed is talking about eventually bringing them up to three and a half, maybe four, that's still inadequate for the job. They, they need uh, much higher rates than that, but we can't afford much higher rates than that. In fact, I don't even think we can afford the rates that we got right now, given the enormity of the debt. We have so much more debt than we had in 2008. So it's a much better, bigger bubble so even a smaller pin 
would prick it. And in fact, we're already in a recession, you know, and that's. Wait, know, wait, wait, wait. Oh, you and I are old school guys, right? So we believe what we were taught in Eco 101, 102, and 103 maybe, and 202 maybe, uh, is that you have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. And that is a definition of recession. But somehow things change. And uh, the the calculation for, let's say, inflation changes, the calculation for employment changes with the labor participation rate. And now the latest thing, well, one of the latest things, is the – the actual calling of recession is no longer what we thought it was, right? Well, it's still what we think it was. It's just that the government wants to pretend it's something else uh, and the media is going along with it. I mean, they never would have gone along with it if Trump tried this, uh, but the Biden administration is able to whitewash this recession, change the definition to claim that we're not in one. And even the chairman of the Federal Reserve is going along with it. Obviously, there's no independence there. He's simply saying what the Biden administration is telling him to say. And so everybody is just trying to pretend the recession doesn't exist, but it does exist. And it's actually going to get much worse. Eventually, it'll be so bad that they're going to have to stop pretending. And then eventually the Fed is going to do something about it. But what it does about it is actually going to make it worse because it's going to throw gasoline on the inflation fire that it's not even going to come close to putting out. You, you said also in, in a recent comment uh, when you talked about um, inflation and what could be done, you said, worse still, a war against inflation can't be won if there are any bailouts or stimulus to ease the pain. So in other words, you're suggesting that these people in government are, are just not really, they don't have the stomach for doing what they have to do. And one of the things that may happen is, as you just mentioned, they're going to, you know, tip their toe into the cold water, but then run out. And it's going to cause a big problem because um, we're going to have further uh, exacerbation of pricing pressures due to their policy. Yes. I mean, you have to recognize that the government's cure for recession is inflation. Their cure for a financial crisis out crisis is bailing out, you know, the parties that are negatively impacted. But in order to bail them out, they create inflation. Quantitative easing is a euphemism for inflation. I mean, what is quantitative easing? You print money and buy government bonds. Well, that's where inflation comes from. You inflate the money supply to buy government bonds and now prices go up. So if they try to fight this recession, by creating even more inflation, well, then the inflation problem gets worse. But so, too, does the recession, because this recession was caused by inflation. And if you try to fight a recession that was caused by inflation by creating even more inflation, well, you obviously make it worse. But inflation is the only tool that the government has, you know, in its toolkit. That's it. All they can do is spend money and they can only spend money if the Fed prints it. You know, what's interesting is that th there's a real truth to what you're talking about right here, because the, what you've talked about is the way that the government theorizes that they can cure a recession is through inflation, through an inflationary policy of some sort, right? Money expansion. There is a reverse truth that a lot of people don't want to accept, and that is the way that they cure inflation is to go into a recession, Right. Isn't the opposite exactly true? Well, they think so. 
but it doesn't actually work because politicians think that inflation is caused by economic growth. It's not. They think inflation is caused by too many people having jobs. It's not. Inflation is not caused by the private sector. The private sector can't cause inflation. It's caused by government. Government is the sole source of inflation because inflation is the increase in the money supply and it's the government that controls that. Um, but what happens when they start to cut back on the easy money policies that caused inflation, the easy money policies also inflate bubbles in the economy because a lot of things happen when you have artificially low interest rates and an expansion of the money supply. When you start to reverse those policies and remove some of that liquidity, a lot of companies that were created or propped up based on cheap money go into bankruptcy. Mm. And, and so asset prices fall and a lot of consumption that was related to wealth goes away. And so when you stop causing inflation, a lot of the economic activity, the phony economic activity that took place as a result of that inflation, well, that goes away too. And so, yes, you take away the cheap money to fight inflation. And at the same time, businesses fail and unemployment goes up. But it's not because you need a recession to fight inflation. It's just that you had phony prosperity as a result of inflation. And when you remove the inflation, well, the phony prosperity collapses along with it. But that's actually a positive thing because it lays the foundation to, to have an economy that, that is sustainable. We can reallocate those resources. The people that lose the wrong jobs can go get the right jobs. And you know, capital can be reallocated. Because if you think about it in reality, a strong economy is an economy that is more productive. There's more output of goods and services. That keeps prices down. If you have more people working productively, those people are producing goods and services. That keeps prices down. So strong economies, low prices. Lots of people working, low prices. It doesn't, you know, the government wants us to believe that if we just have too much economic growth, we're going to have high prices. That's nonsense. Economic growth lowers prices. That's the beauty of it. It brings prices down. And so the standard of living goes up. It's money printing that causes prices to go up, not productivity, not employment. When is the last time that you recall seeing an economy, it could be the U.S. or elsewhere, that was a solid, strong economy with the things that you describe as the basis and backbone of a quality e economic system? Well, I don't think we've really had that. That's what I'm asking since, you. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, well, well since the the beginning of the Federal Reserve in 1913. I mean, the Fed has been manipulating, uh, you know, money supply and interest rates. I mean, that's why we had the stock market bubble in the 1920s. That's what, you know, was the beginning of the what became the Great Depression, although uh, Hoover and Roosevelt intervened in the economy substantially to basically turn that depression into 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 the Great Depression. It would have been over much more quickly had they not intervened. Uh, but, you know, all throughout the 1960s, 70s, I mean, you've had central banks uh, manipulating money and credit. And uh, I think to the detriment of economic growth, I think we would have a much more prosperous society today and Americans would enjoy a much higher standard of living. I mean, way higher had we maintained the sound monetary system that we had 
prior to the introduction of the Fed. And had we had a system that was far more capitalistic than socialistic, which is the direction that we've moved, uh, you know, since we've had the Fed. And of course, you know, the Fed has enabled a massive expansion in the size of government. And that has been a huge uh, roadblock to economic prosperity. Well, that's obviously now you're going to have to start bringing in the whole removal of the gold standard, right? I mean, obviously, this is an area that I haven't really talked to you in a long time, but I know you're still very much, uh, I think you are at least, uh, very much a proponent of we'll call it precious metals and particularly gold, right? Yeah, I mean, in fact, it was just a few days ago that it was 51 years since uh, Nixon had defaulted on U.S. obligations to pay gold and officially took us off what remained of the gold standard. I mean, Roosevelt started it in 1933, and then Nixon finished the job in 1971. But the founding fathers put America on a gold standard for a reason. It's not like they didn't know about paper money. They were very familiar with paper money. They understood how bad it was, which is why they prohibited it. I mean, the Constitution actually prohibits states uh, from issuing paper money. And since it doesn't give the federal government any power to issue paper money, then nobody has the power to issue paper money because that's how the Constitution works. In order for the federal government to be able to do something, the authority to do it must be expressly granted by the Constitution. And the states could do whatever they want as long as it's not prohibited by the Constitution. So we were put on a gold standard and we remained on a gold standard, you know, even with the introduction of the Federal Reserve, we never left the gold standard in 1913 because Federal Reserve notes were backed by, by gold. Mm -hmm. And of course, they were issued by a private bank, the Federal Reserve. They weren't issued by the U.S. government. They were issued by a private banking syndicate. Uh, but they were, they were you know, backed by gold. So that was still the gold standard. But now you had a central bank that could kind of monkey around with stuff. Uh, but it obviously got worse, 1933. But, you know, the... The paper was still backed by by gold. And of course, in circulation, uh, there was still silver. I mean, every, dollars were made of silver, you know, so it, and so were quarters, quarters and dimes. Mm -hmm. So we had we had real money back then. I mean, they didn't take the silver out of our coins until 1968. And, you know, now all of our coins are are zinc, you know, or copper or mostly zinc and some kind of concoction. But pretty soon they'll just make them all out of plastic. You know, they, they wouldn't be well, able before they, to use zinc. Before they retrieve them entirely or, off the market. Or altogether, right. <laughs> In fact, pretty soon they won't even be able to afford right. to, to print the money on paper. Paper yeah, will be right. too expensive. <laughs> so it'll all just be digital. Uh, which, that's a whole different thing. I'm going to talk to you about that, but I want to talk about gold stocks. I want to talk about gold air, the gold area. A uh, good friend of mine, I mentioned he's, he's a fan of yours, uh, Dr. Moore. He's a third, we call him third floor dentist. Um, sent in a couple of questions, and I, let's see if this is something that you have some expertise in. I believe you would about this. And it was in regard to evaluating gold stocks. And in this market, he asks, and in, in general, in reference to a couple of different things, how do you rate the market cap of, you know, the stocks like the majors, the juniors, the explorations? You know, what is, is that an important feature? Well, the market cap, I mean, I mean, you have to relate the market cap to the underlying assets of the company um, to try to determine whether the market cap is, you know, an overpriced stock or an underpriced stock. And so you got to look at a lot of other things and factors, uh, you know, because, you know, a large, just because a company has a large capitalization doesn't necessarily mean that it's over or underpriced. Everything has to be relative 
to what's deriving that that price. So what about in, 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 a, in a particular stage of a business cycle, whether it's inflationary times, deflationary, recession, um, expansion, global catastrophe? Does the market cap mean anything? Like, do you want to be more in the majors and in the large caps in those areas versus maybe the more speculative mining companies? Well, when it comes to gold, obviously the companies that have large market caps by and large are these big established gold mining companies that have been around for a long time. Um, They are in production. They're not just, you know, in the exploratory stages. They've got a lot of reserves, you know, proven reserves that are being mined like now. So they have earnings, you know, cash flow, they have dividends. And so obviously those stocks are going to be less risky. Hard to say that they're conservative because, you know, every gold mining stock I would consider to be risky. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you're going to lose money. You can make a lot of money. That's the nature of risk. It's just an aggressive, it's aggressive uh, uh, position. Yeah. I mean, you've got to realize that you could buy gold stocks and, you know, they could go down a lot. I mean, a lot of things that can go wrong when you're operating a gold mine. I mean, obviously, one important thing is the price of gold. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of obviously. other factors. And and, that, and they're leveraged, just like just like the oil and gas exploration or or a drilling or distributors. Those are gold stocks, just like the oil stocks. Uh, oil companies are leveraged to the price of oil, especially after certain points. Right. Especially after they can recoup. Uh, the value of the mining operation. And when it goes start going up, they can have an exponential amount. Yeah, I mean, obviously you've got a set of fixed costs to mine the gold. And then as the price of gold goes up, you know, every dollar increase is another dollar that drops right to the bottom line. So, you know, if you get a 10% increase in the price of gold, that may equate to a 50% rise in the earnings of a gold mining stock, right? So if the stock is going to trade at a multiple of its earnings, it's going to go up, you know, 50%, not 10%, right? Because of the rise of gold. So that's where the leverage is. But where you get the most leverage, I think, is if you get a much bigger increase in the price of gold, because a lot of these gold companies, you know, what the analysts look at is their reserves that are in the ground. How much gold, how much silver, other precious metals, what do they got? Copper, you know, all these, all these metals that are that they own, they're in these mines. But a lot of the gold that they have is more expensive to get out of the ground than you know some of the other gold that they're in the process of mining. So let's say gold is $1,800 an ounce and you've got gold and it costs you $1,200 an ounce to get it out of the ground. All right, I can make $600 for every ounce I mine. That mm-hmm. might be a good return on, on the cost of mining it. But let's say you've got even more gold in the ground, but it's harder to get out. And given, you know, the cost of energy and, you know, labor costs and other things, it's going to cost you, you know, $2,000 an ounce to get that gold. Yeah, well, that doesn't work. That gold's worthless, right? Right, It's 18. You can only sell it for 1800. It's going to cost you 2000 to get it out of the ground. No one's going to do that. Right. But what if the price of gold goes up to $3,000 $3,000 and maybe the cost of mining, it goes to 2,200, right? It goes up too, but the price of gold goes up even more. Well, all of a sudden I can get $800 an ounce. Well, the market was assigning no value to all mm-hmm. those ounces. Mm-hmm. There could be a lot of ounces there. It just, the market didn't care because it didn't think they'd ever be mined. But now all of a sudden 
they've got all this gold that they weren't even valuing. And now they can make $800 an ounce. Earnings can explode and the valuation. And all of a sudden, investors start attributing value to all those reserves. And they start pricing that value into the market, into the current price. Now, oh, we could be mining this gold for years and years and years mm -hmm. as long as the market maintains a positive outlook on the future price of gold, right? If people think, well, gold's never going to stay. It goes up to, to 3,000. If people think it's going to crash back down you know, to 1,800, they may be a little cautious. They may not think, well, they won't have enough time to get that gold out of the ground. Yeah. What but, about you know, they'll be able to sell some gold. Some forward. of it, of course. Yeah. yeah. But it won't be as valuable. Yeah. yeah. What about what about any countries, any specific countries that you are fond of looking at or that you should we should be looking at in various cycles or just in general in terms of mining some of that maybe you know, cheaper, friendlier or maybe. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, you've got jurisdictions that have less political risk than other jurisdictions. You know, people look at North America as being lower risk, whether it's the U.S. or Canada. Uh, there's a lot of mining there, uh, maybe even Mexico. Uh, you, you know, you also, I think, if you go to like Australia, it's considered a lower risk. Uh, as you start going into places in South America or maybe in Africa or other parts of the world, you start thinking about a little bit more political risk, meaning that the government will try to, you know, steal your mine, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> nationalize yeah. your mine or all of a sudden there's, you know, you need some expensive permits and you got to grease the right, the right palm and, and stuff like that. Um, and, and, and so that happens, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you have a mine and the government yanks your permit or they just say, we're taking it over for the good of the people. Ah, uh, right? always for the good of the people. What <laughs> people, my yeah, family, yes, right? You know? <laughs> exactly. So I have, a, I have a question I think that's been really on the mind of a lot of people who track metals. And that is, we, we could talk about what the hell is going on in an inflationary environment, why it is that, of course, that that maybe gold is not keeping up. But then again, we can kind of talk about it being priced in various currencies. In dollar terms, it's not doing so well. But in yen terms, pretty good, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, it's doing really well in really euro well. terms. And right. uh, yeah, I think the, the only reason I think that gold isn't much, much higher it's the same reason that bond yields aren't much higher. I mean, look at the 30-year bond yield at 3%. A mm 10-year -hmm. uh, bond yield is under 2.9%. I mean, inflation is 8.5% year over year, even if you believe the government's numbers, which I don't. I think it's actually much higher than that. So why are investors content to accept a 3% yield for the next 30 years? Yeah, why is well, that? Well, because they're confident that inflation is going to average uh, less than 2% for the next 30 years. Now, I don't know what these bond investors are smoking, but they couldn't be more wrong. <laughs> inflation is more likely to average, you know, 10% than 3% than 2%. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe it won't be as high as 10 on average. I mean, no, we'll no you, but you just assigned a probability. You said it's, it's, it's a high probability. Yeah, I mean, inflation I mean, long term at 4% is not absurd, by the way, considering what we know from the past. This arbitrary, and let's be honest, Pete, this, this, this arbitrary 2% that almost every country around the world is now brought into their discussion points, where did that come from? Well, you know, the first central bank that had it was New Zealand, as far as I can recall. But it wasn't a target. It was a ceiling. What the New Zealand Reserve Bank said is we're going to make sure inflation is below 2%. So if it ever got above 
that's where they had to say, oh, crap, we got to do something about it. Right. But it wasn't like if it's one percent, they were like, oh, we need we need to push it up mm. to two. That crazy theory <laughs> didn't start until more recently, where all of a sudden what was a ceiling became a target. And then all of a sudden it almost became a floor. They were like, oh, no, no, we got to make sure inflation is, you know, is a, above 2% or something. It's kind of ridiculous. Well, it, because it, the, the whole Federal Reserve, listen, you and I, again, I'm going to I'm gonna put some age on us. And by the way, I like that that beard of yours that you got going on there. Last time you didn't have the beard, you're, you're now, you still have the beard? Well, oh, yeah, I was going to say, how could you see me? I don't have the video well, I don't have, on. No, I have it now, but I'm <laughs> saying, generally speaking, I saw the picture, I've seen you on various things. Uh, but kind of dating us a little bit back here, you know, when we, you know, think about what, 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 um, now I just lost my train of thought. Uh, when, we, when we think about inflation, oh, when we think about inflation, we look at what's happening over the years, and we look at what what um, the, the 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 idea that the Fed is always out there and they're talking about things. You know, there was a time that I don't recall ever really knowing all the names of all the Federal Reserve speakers, the non-voting voting names, who does what, <laughs> who's hawkish, who's dovish. It's like it's like a it's like a ball team right now, right? We got the second-hand reliever coming in after the pitch is going down, and this guy's a yeah, more of a lefty-righty. This I'm like, come on, seriously. The fact that so many people even know who the Fed chairman it's absurd. is lets you know that they're not doing their job because right. the, the whole market is more concerned about what the Fed's going to do than, you know, anything real in the economy. And that's because this whole thing is a bubble. But, you know, getting back to you know the question I wanted to answer about, you know, why gold is so low and why bond yields are so low is because investors still have confidence in the Fed. They still believe that the Fed is going to be able to keep inflation below 2%, which it actually never was even able to do because it was only below 2% because they lied about how they calculated it. The cost of living was actually rising more than 2%, even though we pretended that it was rising by a little less. But it's real inflation that should factor into bond yields and the price of gold, not make-believe inflation. So it's not what the government wants to pretend the cost of living is going up by, it's what it's actually going up by. But they're not going to be able to pretend 2% ever again. I mean, I don't know. I mean, unless, I mean, they'd have to so butcher the CPI to get that to happen. What was the aberration was the last 10 years where we had inflation, the way they measured it, below 2%, even, the, even though they were creating more inflation than ever before. We had QE1, we had QE2, QE3, the QE4. <laughs> massive expansion of the money supply, massive expansion of the Fed's balance sheet. They were creating inflation for a decade. And, you know, it's kind of like the lag that you get you know, if you're in a shower and this is like a classic econ 101 example, but, you know, you go into a shower and the water's too cold and then you turn up the hot and mm. you're still cold. So you turn it up a little more and it's still cold and you turn it up and you turn it up and you're still cold. And so you keep cranking up the heat and then all of a sudden it's scolding hot and you burn yourself because all of a sudden all the hot water comes down. Because what you didn't realize is that there was a lag between you turning that faucet and the hot water coming out. And that's kind of what happened with inflation. The Fed printed all this money with QE1 and then waited for prices to go up. And it's like, oh, whoa, nothing's happening. All those people that were worried about inflation, they were wrong. We can keep on printing. They did 2E2. Nothing happened. No, prices aren't going up. 
you know, forgetting about the fact that the barometer was broken, right? The yeah, CPI but the only thing really I'll get, the only thing I'll give them credit for back then, difference in today, I'm not giving credit, uh, just pointing out actually, is back then there was at least a period of time that they waited to see. Now all of a sudden it's like, oh, the month of July's inflation is really high. We have to increase more. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. What are you talking about? It takes months to get any of this, especially interest rate changes, months to get it into the economic system. Yeah, look, everything that they're doing even now, the impact is would be in years, but it's not even going to be impactful because they're doing too little too late. But getting back to my point, they keep on creating inflation, but they don't see that reflation, inflation reflected in the CPI. In fact, the places they see it are in the stock market, the real estate market, bond market. The Fed likes that. They like stocks going up. Everybody likes that. They like to see asset prices going up. So they keep on creating inflation. And now all of a sudden they've got so much inflation created that we've got this scolding hot water now. We've got, everybody's getting burned with inflation and now they can't do anything. And in fact, the way the Fed was justifying its monetary policy, and not just the Fed, everybody, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England. Look, just yesterday, they reported year-over-year inflation at 10.1%. You know, a year ago, they were saying we need more inflation in the UK. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're like, we don't have enough inflation. Yeah. We need. Bring I it mean, on. this was always nonsense. <laughs> I, I was one of the few people that pointed out the absurdity of these central bankers saying we have 1.7% inflation. We need more. It must be two. Like, so they're going to risk sending inflation through the roof. They're going to risk 10% inflation to move it up from 1.7 to two. Plus, if if prices go up by 1.7%. Why is that like a problem that needs to be solved by making them go up 2%? No. I mean, they, as they, far they, as they, I'm concerned, it would be better. We'd be better off if they if they didn't go up at all. No, they clearly we're, 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 we're looking for a solution to a problem that didn't exist. There's yes, no, there's but no. it was. But the reason, see, the reason they made up this nonsense and nobody in academia, nobody in Wall Street called them out. The Fed just wanted to print more money. The Fed wanted to keep interest rates artificially low to prop up insolvent governments, to prop up overvalued asset prices. And so they made up an excuse for doing it. And the reason was we were below our inflation target. We need to get up to 2%. As if that's somehow the nirvana, right? That is the sweet spot for inflation. <laughs> like if, if, if you want to have maximum economic growth, you need to have inflation of exactly 2%. Yeah. Why? I mean, what's wrong with 1.9%? What's wrong with 2.1? That's what I'm how, saying. How did they know? I didn't how did they know that 2% is it? Did, did they get that from God? Was it like, you know, they were on Mount Sinai and yeah. God, you know, with a Thou shalt have 2% inflation. inflation. Yeah. That's the secret sauce. You know, it's I, all nonsense. It's ridiculous. We, we, it's, we, 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 we would be better off if prices went down by 2% a year instead of up by 2% a year. So I understand the whole dynamic with deflation where that's a problem. And the other thing that's really fascinating- Why is it a problem? What do you, well, first of all, what do you mean by deflation? I'm talking about prices going down significantly on a regular- Why is that a problem? My, my view is that if you have the velocity of money that really is based on the idea that people are buying things, they do seem to hold off if they all think right. prices are going down over time. And that well, is just not economically question. positive. Do you have a cell phone? Yeah. Do you have a computer? Well, many. Do you have a television set? Yep. Why? I mean, why don't you wait? The prices will go down. Uh, that's true. That yeah, is true. Yeah. <laughs> People buy things because they need them, because they want them. 
Yes. If you thought that something was going to be 2% cheaper next year, you're not going to like, no, I'm going to wait till next year. You're going to, I mean, especially what if it's like food? I'm really hungry. Yeah, but if I <laughs> wait a year, I can get that hamburger for 2% less money. No, you're going to, you're going to buy it. it, it the fact that things get cheaper, that, that's a good thing because the only reason that somebody doesn't buy something today is because they can't afford it. Like we talked about television mm -hmm. sets. I remember when I saw my first like high definition television set mm -hmm. and I walked into like, you know, a Best Buy or something and there it was. And I was like, this is amazing. It's like looking through a window. I mean, it was like night and day mm -hmm. compared to, you know, the, the, the TV I had at home, but I didn't buy it as much as I liked it. I didn't buy it because it was like $10,000 <laughs> and that was a lot of money. Like in the 1980s or not, whatever I saw. Well, you probably had one of those backlit projector ones, one of those big <laughs> ones, right? That you could never see anything on. It was always dark. No, but this was a, this was a screen. This wasn't a projector. No, no, I'm saying the one that you and had. And it wasn't even a flat. It wasn't yeah. even flat. Uh. It was, you know, but whatever. But it was, I remember it was a high def picture. And it was like, this is amazing. But I did not buy it. Mm. Now, of course, every TV in my house is high definition, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. I got, I, got, I got them in every room. Yeah. Right? And so it's like, well... Why do I have so many now? Because they're cheaper. It, because the price went down. The, how many people, you and I are older, I mean, you remember Gordon Gecko's big cell phone uh, in the 1980s? That thing was the, like a brick? A brick, yeah, yeah. How many, how many Americans actually bought one of those? I mean, I had the first, I will tell you, I had one of the first uh, car phone, car phones I'm talking about, car phones, uh, that it was yeah. $2,200 I had to pay for it. And, yeah, yeah, and that and was I, that was a lot of money back and then. And I would never use it because it was too expensive when I made calls. Yeah, I remember that. When I had when I got my first cell phone, I wouldn't if anybody called me. Hey, what do you call me now? Wait till the wait till the, the evening. I only talked on the nights and the weekends. Right. It was too expensive to actually use the phone during during business hours. Yeah. And if I used it, it was almost like you know Morse code. I was like really quick. I, I wanted to get off that phone yep. like right away. I couldn't just uh, just talk. But the point is that very few people bought cell phones initially. Now even people on welfare have cell phones. Yeah. Everybody has a cell so phone. What if the first cell phone was the cheapest and the price just went up? Well, you know, nobody would have them. So falling prices create demand. The idea that if prices go down, demand's going to be destroyed, that 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 puts economics upside down. The lower the price, the greater the demand. And the idea that well businesses can't make money if prices are going down. Sure they can. They make money on the margin. If your costs are going down and your prices are going down, you might actually make more money because it's volume. Mm. You could sell a lot more cell phones at, you know, a few hundred dollars a pop than a few thousand dollars a pop. A lot more people can afford three or four hundred dollars for a cell phone than three or four thousand. So you could make a lot more money at a lower price point because you make it up on volume. And, and, and that's the free market. I mean, the beauty of the free market is that prices go down. But, you know, a lot of people look at the Great Depression and they say, oh, well, prices went down during the Great Depression. Therefore, we can't let prices go down or we'll have another Great Depression, right, which is very bad logic. It's like looking at out on the street and you see a bunch of people walking around with umbrellas and, and you also see it's raining and then you conclude that umbrellas cause the rain. Right. Hey, you better not you better not use umbrellas because. If enough people have umbrellas, it's going to start raining. You know, it's just like they're coming up with bad logic. Yes, prices fell during the Great Depression, but that's not why we had a Great Depression. In fact, 
prices going down help make the Great Depression not as bad. I mean, if prices went up during the Great Depression, it would have been a lot worse. Mm. Well, that's true. There's some truth there. But let's get back to the precious metals. This The question about, and we'll do this quickly, so I want to also talk about China, EM, real quickly, and i, I got to talk to you about crypto. Um Gold and silver, the gold-silver ratio, right? The 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 wonderful ratio that we're, you know, a lot of people are over the years looking at, you know, if we get a certain level and particularly uh, when it thins out to, to the ratio being a certain level, um, why why is it being, what, what's happening with silver? Well, I mean, silver and gold yeah. have been going down. Um, and so silver, I think, has gotten a double whammy because it's kind of gone down as an industrial metal and it's been dragged down as a as a precious metal. But again, you know, people just don't see a reason to buy silver or gold to hedge against inflation because they don't believe there's any inflation to hedge against. I mean, yes, there's inflation for the short run, but everybody expects the Fed to get rid of it. And, you know, most people either think the Fed's going to get rid of inflation with high interest rates or the recession that the Fed causes by raising interest rates. Well, that will get rid of inflation. So one way or another investors think inflation is going away and they're wrong. All the rate hikes are going to do <clears throat> is cause a recession and make the recession worse and maybe cause a financial crisis. They won't raise rates enough to stop inflation, but they will raise them enough to prick the bubble in the economy. And when enough air comes out of it, they will go back to inflation creating, except they're going to go back to it from a level where inflation is already way above 2%, not below 2%. So I think investors have it completely wrong. It's Inflation is here to stay. It's going to get worse. We're in recession. That's going to get worse, too. It's not just stagflation. It's an inflationary depression, as far as I'm concerned, not even recession. And I think you know we get a dollar crisis. I think we get a sovereign debt crisis. I think when the world understands that we're going to have permanently high inflation, then nobody is going to want to buy our bonds. And as bond prices collapse and interest rates rise, the Federal Reserve is going to be pressured to monetize all of that debt to prevent yields from rising to levels that would force the U.S. government to default on its obligations. And that means money printing goes off the charts. And then we have runaway inflation, maybe hyperinflation. What do you think? I mean, do you think that we're in better shape or worse shape than China? As econ oh, economy. Oh, 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 we're in way worse shape than China. I mean, it's it's night and day. Uh, what about you know, Japan? I mean, what about Japan? Japan, yeah, by the look, way, Japan, think, in my opinion, is the worst offender of central banks of all central banks. Well, the, the Japanese central bank made a major, major mistake, and the Japanese people are going to pay for it and are paying for it. But I think that the structure of the Japanese economy, despite all those mistakes, I think Japan is still better off than the U.S., I mean, and I even think that's true for Europe. As screwed up as Europe is, I think the U.S. is even more screwed up. And, and you know, because you could look at our trade deficits and how enormous they are. And they're at all-time record highs. You know, and not only is the U.S. a debtor nation, whereas you look at these other countries, a lot of other countries are creditor nations, but we owe more debt than all the other debtor nations of the world combined. See, the problem is, you know, we have been running this phony service sector economy based solely on our exorbitant privilege 
of being the issuer of the world's reserve currency. So we have created an economy that depends on foreign capital and foreign produced goods. And if we lose access to that, everything implodes. And it's not like we could just start making the stuff ourselves. We can't. You need capital. You need supply chains. You need trained workers. We don't have any of that stuff. <laughs> mm, right. you know, we had it at one time. Well, we did. We, we exported it. We all. lost it. Yeah, it's we gone. We, we gave it away. It's we in did. China. Yeah. It's, in, it's all over the rest of the world, you know. Let so, me ask you about, um, let me ask you about, I just want to segue because I know your time is limited. Uh, crypto. Um, a little, little um, maybe word association game here with crypto. You're not, just to be clear, unless something's changed, you're not the biggest fan of crypto. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong? No, no, no. I, and that's putting it mildly. <laughs> Let me give you a couple of uh, pieces uh, here. Michael Saylor. Yeah. What, what, uh, word, what word comes to mind? Well, I mean, he's one of the biggest and maybe the biggest, it's hard to say, crypto pumpers out there. You know, I mean, he's not only did he buy a bunch of crypto for himself, but he loaded up uh, the company that he runs, a micro strategy is now basically a crypto ETF. I mean, it's not really a software company anymore. It's just a, a, a crypto play. Um, but I mean, obviously, you know, this is something where I had an opportunity to once again profit off the foolishness of others and didn't do it. You know, Why I, not? I learned about crypto. Well, you couldn't have really, early on. you couldn't have shorted crypto. Oh, you mean going the long side? Oh, yeah. Long I side. mean, if I, I mean, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, when I first learned about it, you know, it was under 100. It might have been under 10. I don't recall exactly. And I remember thinking about buying it. I remember I thought about, should I throw in a thousand, 10,000? I mean, I didn't think about putting in like, Hundred thousand, but at the time I thought about ten grand. Right. I mean, that would be you know I don't know a billion. Let's not I talk about it. Sad. I didn't sell it. <laughs> right, right, right. But but you know at the time I learned about Bitcoin. Bitcoin was the only cryptocurrency out there. I mean, it was nothing else. And I, one of the reasons I didn't buy it, as I said, well, what stops people from coming up with with another one? I mean, what's so scarce about it? If you know, it doesn't really have any real physical properties. It doesn't do anything. I can't use it for anything. Uh, and you can replicate it and, and make as many copies as you want and just have a different name. I mean, what's what's that? I just didn't think it could ever be a store of value. I just didn't see the value. I understood. And even back then, back then it had a lot more value than it does today in that at least criminals could use it. It's like, well, you could buy you could buy some stuff that's illegal on the Silk Road. I mean, nobody everybody thought back then that it was completely anonymous, that nobody would know what right. you were doing. Right. That was it, does, it doesn't even have that characteristic anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I was like, look, this is like a fad. It's not going to work. I mean, the people are going to lose their money. And it, and back then it was just a bunch of libertarians. And of course, you know, I'm a libertarian, too. So libertarian computer geeks kind of got into it. Uh, and I remember thinking, yeah, they're you know, they're trying to replicate gold, but, you know, they're missing out on the most important part of gold. And that's its value as a metal. The fact that people want to make jewelry out of gold, that they conduct electricity with it. I mean, it's the most valuable metal on the periodic table. And that's why, you know, you know, it has so much value and it, it doesn't tarnish. It doesn't decay. I mean, it's perfect as a long-term store of value because no matter how long you store it, none of the value is going to go away. And that's very rare uh, on this earth, but there was nothing special or unique about Bitcoin. And so I was like, look, this isn't going to work. And of course I underestimated how foolish people would be and how greedy they would be. 
And I outthought myself. I thought myself out of, you know, I, you know, I reasoned myself out of a lot of money, or maybe I was just scared to buy it. Although I, I, I've thrown much larger amounts at really risky stuff and lost it. So, what about? Yeah. Uh, I'll give you another name, Pompliano. Yeah, I look. He's another guy who I know. I mean, I know him personally. I mean, I don't know Sailor at all. Um, I mean, Sailor is afraid to debate me. He won't, you know, accept any invitations. Pomp is, you know, I go on his show. I mean, we we go back and forth all the time. But yeah, I mean, he's just another person. He, I think, he's very sincere. You know, there's a lot of these crypto people that, you know, really believe in this stuff. Well, uh, well, but but it's more like a religion. It's, or say, it's like a, a religion. Cult. Right. They're like Bitcoin is going to solve everything. I'm thinking all I, I envision is if this was back in the 1800s, these are the guys that were walking the road with the elixir. You know what I mean? Yeah. Look, it's snake oil. It's, you know, they these guys would have jumped all over tulips and the Dutch <laughs> tulip craze. Yeah. You know, they think that I'm just an old guy that, you know, I don't want a car. Or I, I I prefer a horse and buggy or I don't want electricity. I'm, I just want candles as if Bitcoin <laughs> is some kind of improvement on gold. It doesn't improve on gold at all. It's fool's gold. Uh, but I think part of the problem is the people who did get in early made so much money so much that they think they're right, right? There's an old expression, don't confuse brains with a bull market. Well, that's even more important in a bubble. Never think you're smart because you got lucky enough to make money in a bubble, right? Uh, but everybody just thinks they're a genius because they made so much money. And they think they're gonna keep making money. And I think that clouds their judgment. They, they, they can't see reality because to admit that Bitcoin's going to go down is like a game changer, like changes your whole life. Again, it's like, you know, it's like trying to convince, you know, a, a devoutly religious person that there, that there's no God. I mean, how could they even accept that? And, you know, because it would change their entire, you know, worldview. I mean, everything is built on their faith. They're not going to surrender their faith, right. you know? And so it's like, you've spent the last five or 10 years in this fantasy about Bitcoin I mean, you're not giving that up. I mean, you're you're holding on to it. Uh, and even though, you know, Bitcoin was at 69,000 and now it's at, you know, 24,000, 23,000, whatever it is, it's gone down, you know, a lot. I mean, their confidence isn't shaken because they all. go back and think, yeah. well, you know, it went down from 20,000 to 4,000 or it went from 100 bucks to 10 bucks. Right. It always comes back. Well, actually, the, it, when it goes down, they get even more emboldened in the fact that, hey, this has done this before. This is good. It's a proper shakeout. Bitcoin does this. You know, Bitcoin, You the reason you hold Bitcoin is for other things. The fact that it goes down from uh, it has 90 percent swoons is something you just need to be content with. I'm thinking, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Let me get this straight. You want me to believe one of three things. It's a store of value. It's a currency or it's a speculative instrument. Store of value, not buying so much, by the way. It just, you know, doesn't make any sense because the fact is store of values don't have that kind of variation in terms of, of, of return. A currency, you want me to buy something, go to the, the car dealership and use my Bitcoin, and all of a sudden it's down 12% that day or up 12% that day, whatever it may be. And, I, I, and all of a sudden there's a differential. And finally, speculative. I see it as a great speculative instrument because it does trade efficiently and, and effectively. Uh, commissions have to come down on the trading. It's too high. Um, but the scarcity factor, which Michael Saylor is always talking about, the 21 million, 
It's only going to be 21 million and, and that whole discussion. The fact is that, you know, so what? Is this just going to go up forever? And is it now going up forever to a point that becomes unreachable for the average Joe? And what's the point of that? Well, first of all, scarcity in and of itself doesn't mean anything. You have to be scarce and valuable. Right. Right. I mean, I could I could, uh, you know, paint something and say, hey, this is a Peter Schiff original painting. There's only one of them. Uh, but if it is anybody going to want to buy it, I mean, just because it's scared, Hey, there's only one, right? You can have the only one. I mean, it may suck. Nobody may want it. The thing is, if you can't do anything with Bitcoin, it doesn't matter whether there's 21 million or just one. And in fact, 21 million is just such an arbitrary thing because each Bitcoin can be broken down into 100 million Satoshis. Now, what's the difference between a Satoshi and a Bitcoin? Well, really nothing. I mean, it's just more one Bitcoin is just a bunch of Satoshis. So if I said there's 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis, Satoshis wouldn't sound that scarce. Mm. I mean, yeah. I could take the Bitcoin and just bundle it up again and say, hey, there's not 21 million. Now there's only 2.1 million. Right. It's like a reverse split. Mm -hmm. Would that make them any more desirable that, just right. because I, I did a reverse split? So it's just a preposterous thing because. Everybody can have a few hundred thousand Satoshis. Everybody in the planet can have a few. And the thing is, you can't do anything with them. You know, I mean, I mean, I could do as much with a Satoshi as I can with a Bitcoin, which is nothing. You know, uh, they say, well, you know, you can break an ounce of gold up into little grams. You can, but I could do 10 times as much with an ounce of gold as I can with a tenth of an ounce. I can make 10 times more jewelry. Mm -hmm. I can conduct 10 times the electricity. But I can't do anything more with 100 million Satoshis than I can with one, other than just trade them, give them to somebody. But that doesn't count as a use. I mean, you know, you could trade anything as long as someone is dumb enough to buy it. I mean, gold is traded, but it's also used. And the reason it's valuable is because it's used. If nobody could use gold for anything, then, it, it, you know, it wouldn't have any, any, any value either. The whole idea that these Bitcoin guys try to say, well, gold has no value. So, it doesn't, you know, so so you could you might as well use Bitcoin. Of course, gold has no value. But yeah, you're right. They try to say that gold, Bitcoin is a safe haven store of value. But if you buy it, you got to be willing to accept the fact that it can go down 80 or 90 percent, you know, the, right after you buy it. Well, then it's not a safe haven. If you're telling me that I can buy it, but it might collapse. What where's the safety there? Mm. I mean, how is that different than a, 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 a tech stock with no earnings? I mean, I could get, you know, I'm willing to take that kind of risk. Why do I, should I buy Bitcoin? But then if you're saying, well, it's good for trading. Well, but why? I mean, if. Well, I'm just saying as an interim trading instrument. I mean, I'm not yes, saying. But know, until all the about. bottom drops out, because the only reason. The bottom drops out if, trading you're, it if you're trading it, though, you get out of it. Is all I'm yeah, but somebody's going to get stuck with it. Okay. Right? I mean, okay. The bag holders you, get you, stuck. Hopefully it's not you if you're trading it. If you trade, if you're well, a good trader. You, you hope it's not you. Right, right. But, but the whole reason for its existence is supposed to be that it's a store of value. I get or that it. that it's a medium exchange or a unit of and account. A safe but it's neither of those things. And it's, yeah, it's like saying I'm buying a car that's really safe and has a tendency to go on its own and skid off the side of the road. But you have to deal with that. See, what, what some people tell me in Bitcoin <laughs> is they say, look, they will admit that Bitcoin is too volatile to be used as a medium of exchange or a unit of account and or a store of value. But what they say is that in the future, at some point, when the price is high enough, maybe a million dollars of Bitcoin, maybe $10 million of Bitcoin, then 
it will be stable. Then it will be a store of value. Then it will be, I go, really? What, what, so why? So you're, it's basically a speculative bet that it will do that. Will, it will achieve something in the future that it hasn't achieved so far. I mean, Bitcoin has been around for 10 years and it's no closer to being money than it was 10 years ago. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. And then so just, yeah. why is it going to be any different in another 10 years? Yeah. And why does the price have anything to do with it? Meanwhile, there's now 20,000 or more than 20,000 other tokens that Bitcoin competes with. I mean, there is a, there are there most of these tokens didn't exist five years ago. So, you know, was wasn't Bitcoin better back then when it had less competition? Now it's got all this competition, and now not only does Bitcoin compete with other altcoins, it competes with NFTs. Hell, if you want to buy something with no value, there's plenty of NFTs out there you could buy. Plus, now there's all these crypto companies you could buy, and if you really like Bitcoin. Why not buy the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust that trades at a 30% discount to Bitcoin? I mean, if you like Bitcoin, why pay a dollar for a Bitcoin when you can pay 70 cents and get the same Bitcoin? Mm -hmm. right. I mean, there's so much competition now with Bitcoin. All these companies, I mean, you could buy MicroStrategy micro stock if you like Bitcoin. Why buy Bitcoin? Buy the stock. I mean, there's so many different ways you can play it. Whereas, you know, five, 10 years ago, all you had was Bitcoin. So let me just be clear. Let me just make sure I understand this. And be, you're not a fan of Bitcoin, correct? <laughs> yes, you, you you deduce that. Yes, Peter Schiff. I, I, I wanted to be a little subtle. I didn't want to come right out and say it. Peter Schiff, CEO and global strategist uh, for Europe Pacific Capital. We're going to put all the information on the show notes for episode number seven seventy. Oh yeah, seven seventy eight, I believe, of the Discipline Investor Podcast. Uh, we'll put it on uh, the show notes is there as well. Peter, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, keep up the good work. And if your listeners, you know, if you guys want to follow me, I do my own podcast, the Peter Schiff yep. Show podcast. Yep. i doing it forever. Uh, You've been a long-term doing that. Not forever, but, you know, I used to do this radio show. Right. And, uh, and then I kind of morphed it into the podcast. They didn't really have enough time. I did the radio show five days a week, live, two hours a day. So that was I tried that for two, three years and then kind of moved on to the podcast. Yeah. Uh, so people can listen to Shift Radio on my YouTube channel, any place they have podcasts. And again, you know, if, you, if you're looking to get out of U.S. stocks, get out of U.S. dollars, look at international alternatives as safe havens and, 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 and good inflation hedges. We buy a lot of value stocks, dividend paying stocks. We do a lot in the precious metals mining sector. So if you'd like to have an account with us, you can go to uh, Europe Pacific Capital website, uh, uh, europacfunds.com or uh, europac.com for the broker dealer, Europac Europe funds for my asset management company. And, you know, if you're doing it yourself, guy, if you have a discount brokerage account, I have five mutual funds that are available, no load, pretty much on all the uh, major uh, discount brokerage houses. Mm -hmm. And you can learn about my funds on the, the, the website, uh, epacfunds.com. Uh, epacfunds.com and you can read about all five of the funds that we manage perfect great stuff and when you yeah. get, when you get down to south florida when it gets cold there in westport you uh, call me up we'll do some fishing well i'm actually down here in puerto rico so it never really gets cold here yeah, that's true but, Good uh, point. but, <laughs> but i still might come up there to florida yeah that'd be great all right we'll talk all right. To you soon. thanks so much peter bye bye that's a pretty uh intense conversation with peter schiff there talking about gold talking about uh monetary debasement talking about the Mm, errors that are being pushed on us and 
what's happening with the economies around the world by really poor central banking. I couldn't set up a lot of that better. We have our disagreements on a few of the topics there, obviously, with some of uh, the gold standard and all that. And uh, But I still think that a great deal of information, and I want to thank him so much for being here. Listen, we're going to end it right there. Until next week, I want you to make sure you have a great time. Reboot, of course. We are going to come from abundance, right, rather than coming from scarcity. We're going to create that financial freedom. Thank you so much for joining me. Once again, check out thedisciplineinvestor.com. Make sure to see all the things that we do. And, of course, I would love to work with you with your investments. Let's make it happen. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition... The information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida, and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training.